Hey y'all, this is Culture Soup, where tech, culture, and business collide. It's a podcast that spoons up everything hot from social media. I'm your host, L. Michelle Smith, and each episode, we bring you some of the most notable and not yet notable thought leaders in tech, business, and culture. The year was 1989. I had received my diploma from my high school. I had gotten accepted at the last minute to Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. And I packed up all of my things, not very many things, and my dorm room was already reserved and it was time for us to make that not so long journey up Interstate 30, going west to TCU to move in my freshman year. I had a roommate that was assigned to me. I hadn't met her yet, but eventually I would. In fact, I started out in a different dorm. My dad wasn't too pleased about it because it was... Over in the Greek, if you're from TCU, you know what the Greek is. That's where all the Greek houses were and are, I should say. And they are way far away from the academic buildings. The dormitory was called Wiggins Hall. And you know what? Honestly, I don't even know if it exists over there anymore because they changed the campus so much. Ultimately, after calling campus life and housing we were able to get me moved. I think I probably was at Wiggins for about a week. And I don't even remember the name of the roommate that I first had. But I got to move to Shirley Hall. When I moved to Shirley Hall, I met my first roommate. She would be my sorority sister eventually. Her name, Keisha Watson. Keisha was in the Army ROTC. And so were many of my African-American friends that were at TCU. At the time, it was 3% black on campus, which meant there were a handful of women and there were a lot of men who were either in Army ROTC, they were playing sports, either on the basketball or the football team. So there weren't very many black people at TCU at the time. So we stuck together really, really close. So when I met Keisha, the first thing I learned about her was that she was a nursing major and she had joined the Army ROTC to fund her nursing education. And you know what? We became really good friends. In fact, I mentioned that we both pledged the same sorority. Keisha pledged it before I did. It was the same sorority that my mom was a member of, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Keisha was my big sister. She's still my big sister in a lot of ways. We've been through a lot, and she has really turned into the quintessential boss. In fact, she's a hero. She served in the military, and I thank her for her service, but she's also serving right now on the front lines of this global pandemic, leading teams of nurses into battle, to war against this health crisis. 
I wanted to bring her on. In fact, I invited her some months ago before everything hit. And then she got really, really busy, of course. But she wiggled some time into her schedule. In fact, I got to eke into her very precious and sacred vacation time off. But she spent some time with me. And we did something that we hadn't done before. We went live on the Culture Soup Podcast Facebook page. So if you're over there already, you've probably already heard the show. But for the rest of you, here is Dr. Keisha M. Kelly. She is a C-suite executive for one of the country's largest hospital networks. And I'm proud to call her my sister. Without further ado... Keisha Kelly. Dr. Keisha M. Kelly, who's vice president and chief nursing and chief operating operating officer for Common Spirit Health. Can you tell me, because all of us across the country may not be mm-hmm very familiar with Common Spirit Health, but how many hospitals are we talking here? Um, You know, I keep losing count. It's somewhere between 140 and 107. There's been some that have merged. Um, I think we sold off some hospitals. So it's somewhere between 140 and 147. Um, We're the largest not-for-profit healthcare organization in the country. Wow, that is amazing. And Keisha, how do you keep up with all those hospitals? Well, um, I, you know, I have seven. So, um, and I know that you, so I have my, what's interesting with me is that I have my hospital, which I'm the COO and CNO of as the vice president, but I also have um, six other hospitals, uh, which a total of seven that I'm the division chief nursing officer for. And um, I I don't know how I do it. You know, I, I, I can (laughs) tell you is I just, um, you know, you just kind of deal with one thing at a time and, um, yeah, it's 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 a challenge. It's doable, but um, you know, it's all about managing the people. Yeah, yeah, and I know that can be a big, big deal. Now, um, you didn't just start doing this when we were roommates in college, y'all. I gotta tell you, you started your nursing journey then in school, yes. right? Yes. Uh, golly, that was nineteen eighty nine. We're we're like ancient. I know, right? (laughs) Oh, and nursing school was so hard. It was so hard. And it was, um, it was hard. And I mean, of course I made it. And, uh, but there was, there were some moments there where a couple of us just didn't know if we were going to graduate just because some of the classes as it, as we went along got, you know, got tougher over time. But yeah, Yeah. you remember. Yeah. And I mentioned school because you have doctor in front of your name. And yes. not to confuse folks, you're like Dr. Nurse. <laughs> Tell us how that's that works. pretty much. Well, it's, um, you know, so I have a doctor of nursing practice and uh, in nursing, there are two terminal degrees. You have a PhD and then you have a doctor of nursing practice and PhDs are usually for the most part are in the academic setting. They're very research based. They generate research. They're usually faculty. Um, you know, they have a different um, focus, whereas um, the doctor of nursing practice is more of a practice um, doctorate, and it, it really is intended for people who want to stay in the operation setting. 
but have a terminal degree. And so a lot of what I do and my role is really about, it's really about translating the evidence mm-hmm. into practice. Okay. And that's the difference with both of them. Yeah. yeah. And you have done so much work to get all sorts of letters and credentials. <laughs> and here you are leading during a time of crisis. Like you've been through crisis before, but anything like this? Nothing like this. Yeah. No, nothing yeah. like this. This has been um, quite the journey. Well, before we get going too far, what do you say we have a culture soup moment? Sure. Awesome. Okay, so COVID-19 is a hashtag. It's a trending topic. Gosh, it's, it's wearing us down. But at the same time, we started this back in March, at least going home. And now we're seeing a resurgence long before the fall wave that they said was going to come. Yes. And Keisha, you've been at this for a little bit. Even before we knew mm-hmm. that this was going to be something that was going to hit us, you got an assignment. What was it? Well, you know, it's interesting that everybody is says that it happened in March is when everything hit the fan. But we actually heard about the first case in Wuhan, China, yeah. back in December. Wow. And so we were already on a hyper alert at that moment. And we're already, uh, and most of healthcare was already, um, we were already preparing. Mm-hmm. And, but it was really more of just daily updates and what's happening and who's getting in and where is it happening and, you know, screening criteria. So, um, it, but, it, but then what happened is when the first community, you know, we were trying to ban all these traveling, we just don't mm-hmm. come from China, don't come from, you know, Europe and, and then when it happened that somebody who was just out in the community, just out there minding their own business, got it. Then we realized it was in the community and that's yeah. when everything hit the fan and we had to really get our arms wrapped around it and prepare for it. That's wild. And then someone said, Dr. Kelly, we need you to stand up a COVID, um, <laughs> like part of the hospital or was it a separate area? It was a well, unit. It was- it was it was our unit, and so in in San Francisco, um, the uh, the chief nurses and, uh, and the the chief nurses of all the hospitals in San Francisco, not even just my organization, we all were working together. My boss was working together with the hospital presidents. We happened to have had we had capacity, mm-hmm. um, and my ho- my boss happens to be the president of the San Francisco Hospital Council, so he kind of offered it up. Okay, hey, we'll do it. And, uh, <laughs> Thanks, boss. No pressure. And, yeah, no, no pressure. He said they would do it. And then um, it was so we just decided that we were going to um, build this unit. And the intent was to decompress other hospitals. If they started mm-hmm. to reach capacity, mm-hmm. you know, we wanted them to send their, their patients to us. And, yeah. and it was a uh, we, we did it very fast. And, you know, I mean, I'm a nurse, but I'm a diehard operator. Yeah. Diehard operator. And, and you know, and that's my military background. It's all about execution. Yes. Just t- get just it done. What you need. Yeah. Just tell me what you need <laughs> and get out of my way and mm-hmm. let me do it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about my boss is he said, this is what we need. This is when it needs to happen. He said, make it happen. Yeah. And we yeah. did. Yeah. And you did it. And there was a lot of <laughs> coverage of it. I saw that you were standing for a picture, cutting a ribbon and all that good stuff. But this, yeah. these were happier times before all the patients came. <laughs> then it got yeah, we, were getting, we were all getting some here and there. And, you know, what was interesting about the pictures that you see of me in the, in the unit was, 
I was actually having a motivational conversation with the nurses and telling them that they were making history today. Mm. And uh, this was groundbreaking um, that we were doing this. And, um, and, and it wasn't just about what we were doing for the hospital, but it was about what we were doing for the community. Yeah. And they were, um, because there was, you know, there was a lot of fear and consternation sure. and, that we were seeing outside of there, but I was literally telling them, you guys, you've got this, you are the yeah. experts. And everybody in the country is gonna be looking at you right now. Nobody's yeah. interested in me. They're going to be interested in them. And then from that yes. point on, you know, they became stock photos and stock videos every time they wanted to talk about COVID in San Francisco. Right. Well, listen, you know what? We're going to talk about leadership lessons. That's one right there. Mm-hmm. Motivating folks to do their very best. Yes. And giving them that context of exactly. what the mission really is about. Mm-hmm. So how do you keep people motivated when, I mean, it's one thing to be cut in a ribbon at a brand new unit and saying, "Woo, we're going in the battle. But yes. once you're in the battle and it looks like, wow, when's the end of this? How do you keep people motivated? Well, you know, it's interesting that I've learned and, and you know, and a lot of, uh, of what I learned in the military um, is really a lot of principles I've brought into my role as an executive. Mm-hmm. And first and foremost, is it's, it's do as I do and not as I say. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so no one expected me to go in that unit and do patient care. Yeah. But what was most valuable at that time was my presence on the unit, mm-hmm. uh, the presence. And, um, and so, because we know that as this was evolving, it was like driving a car and fixing it at the same time. Oh, wow. So, you know, so the staff were getting a lot of information. We, it, the information was changing every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were, and once we had a communication plan, it would change before we could even roll it out. Yeah. So what we were doing was pushing out communication and then myself and my leadership team, every day we were on the floors mm-hmm. because they needed to see our faces. We needed to dispel the rumors. Uh, we needed to just uh, provide compassion and mm-hmm. support. And we're here there with you, you know, because I find that, you know, as a, as an executive, it's easy for us to sit in on offices and just kind of, you know, bark out what we want people to do of from course. our offices. Um, but I think that that was probably the, 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 the leadership lesson that I learned in that was the value of being present, mm-hmm. not it, there's, there's visible and then there's present and then there's being approachable. Yeah. And, um, and the more, and what I had to do, which people don't know was there was a little bit of criticism that, okay, mm-hmm. well, I'm not going into the rooms. And mm-hmm. the reason why I wasn't was first of all, um, we were not sure how much personal protective equipment we had. Right. And so for me to go in there and, and, and go into every single room, I was going to have to change. You're depriving from ha- somebody. Right. And then I'm, right. and I'm pulling away from the people who are actually doing the care. Mm-hmm. But one day I came in, I was like, okay, I'm coming down here. And I went down to a unit and uh, I put on everything, mm-hmm. uh, the personal equipment, and I had the nurses to make sure, I, because we, we checked to make sure we have it on correctly. Yeah, I yeah. Said, am I good? I yeah. Like, I'm going in. And I yeah. literally went into a room and spent about 10 minutes with the patient. Wow. Talking, and I came out, and I said, okay, guys, I've done this. Mm-hmm. And I said, but now you know that I am willing to go into these rooms. But what you mm-hmm. also need to understand is that I am not going to deprive the supplies that you need to do your work just to make it right. Work. 
Right. So, so you need to tell your friends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, and so that was what we did. They needed that perspective. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Presence, perspective, motivation. Now tell me, how are things in San Francisco now? Because, you know, here in Texas, we got a few factors going on. And so well, now here we are again. <laughs> but how is San Francisco doing? I know California. We're actually like, doing a very, we're doing well. We're, mm-hmm. we're actually doing very well. And uh, you know, you know who London Breed is. Man, I just got to give her her props. Yeah. Um, and I think that what we've seen, I'm a little biased towards women. Yeah. But where the pandemic has been managed well, there yes. is a woman. Yes. Up New Zealand. Point. And uh, in New Zealand, you know, and, 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 and let's take, you know, uh, and, and even though Chicago, Washington, D.C. and Atlanta have gotten they've gotten hit. But it's not because of it, it was because of the governors, not because. Yeah. Of the mayors. And you know and, what? Right. That's the deal in Dallas. We've got a mayor and a judge over the county that yes. are they really care about the people. But we got this yes. governor. That's making it very, very hard, very difficult. Exactly. And then the good thing here is that you've got you got Gavin Newsom and you got London Breed who were on the same page. And really, what I don't know if people know this, but London Breed was out of the gate before Gavin was. Yeah. So when he put his orders in place, London had already shut us down. Wow. Um, and, and and so she did that very early on. And then when Gavin kind of did his whole thing, mm-hmm. he basically said, you know, this is he wasn't going to intervene with what London had already done. So he respected her leadership in San Francisco. Um, So that being said, because of those early measures, because of the trust that Gavin has put in all his mayors across California, we're actually doing very well. And we're we're being very slow and measure in how we open up. Mm -hmm. And it was a little annoying at first, you know, I was like, seriously, come on, we're good. You know, but when I watched, you know, when you watch Florida and you watch Texas and you watch Arizona and Vegas and how they just kind of just plumb full open the doors up. In Florida. In Florida. And then look what <laughs> happened. Yeah. So fortunately, we just have been watching that and, and learning from that. Even though we're still, we have a phased approach in how we're opening and mm-hmm. we have proposed timelines. But within those proposed timelines, because we've managed it so well, we've actually been able to push up our timelines on mm-hmm. certain things that have opening. So yeah. um, I've been very um, pleased with um, the leadership here in California and particularly here in San Francisco. That's awesome. You mentioned at some point you posted something about, and it was pretty early on, how you get your information I know that as a con- consumer that just, you know, I'm watching network cable news. I'm listening to radio. Sometimes you can get good information. Other times, no, especially if listening to the sound bites from some of our leaders. Right. And you made a statement that you get your information from like three different sources to make sure that you get in the most mm-hmm. updated. So you want to tell everybody what that is? There was. It was the Center for Disease Control. Yes. It was the California Department of Health and the San Francisco Department of Health. Yes. That's where I get my information from. That's what drives my practice. That's what mm-hmm. drives how we do our work because there's no noise there. You know what right. I mean? There's just too much noise and everybody has their own interpretation. And, you know, in and, and all due respect to Dr. Fauci, I don't even really, I just, 
you know, I he, he the the media tends to pull sign bites from him, yeah, and then makes an interpretation of it. Right. So we've just decided to just go with the orders that are, and we get daily updates from the state and from the city. And that's what, that's what drives our work. You know, we mm-hmm. get our statistics about how many cases we have. We have our statistics about um, how many fatalities we're having. And, 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 and that has really um, minimized my anxiety yeah. around this. Yeah. yeah. What's one of your biggest concerns going into this next spike? I'll call it a spike because they were looking at a wave coming in the fall with the change yeah. of, of weather and such. But here we are in the summertime where everybody said, oh, the heat is going to help things. You know, it's going to mm-hmm. kill off, kill off. <laughs> Whatever that means, COVID-19 yeah. will be suffering as much. And here we are post-Memorial Day weekend going mm-hmm. into July 4th weekend. And we've seen video of people on beaches and people at bars and, yeah. gosh, in mega churches singing their hearts out. Yes. What's your take on everything? You know, I um, I've been gravely disappointed in 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 people in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I it's 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 heartbreaking that um, you know that the masks wearing of masks has become such a political issue. Yeah, um, you know it's that we you know we we've had no flattening of the curve. It's actually an embarrassment. Yeah, how our country looks. Uh, across the world and how we've managed this. Um, and I really, I really worry about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I worry that, you know, that w- what I do know based on historical context, that the virus does have a peak and it does have a plateau and it does, it has a, a cycle that it goes through. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that you have the cycle in this city and then you have a cycle in this city and you have a cycle and it just keeps cycling through, yeah. you know, it's hitting the rural communities and people are and, traveling. They're still on planes. And people are traveling and they're on planes. And, um, you know, and I just, I, I worry that, um, I don't understand why people are not taking this seriously. I, I don't buy into the conspiracy theories. Yeah. Um, I, I can't buy into them because I'm seeing it every day. And people questioning the numbers, questioning the statistics. Um, and for me, quite frankly, I, it's a lot, but, but it's, it's what I'm seeing. And I, quite honestly, one life lost is too many. Yeah. One life too many. lost is too many. And, and that's really the context by which I go. So I'm, I'm just really worried that, that we're not going to get on the other side of this because unfortunately this has been politicized Yeah, and it's been politicized. And, you know, I, I think about um, the governor in New York, you know, governor Cuomo, um, you know, and he said one day, he said, you know, without people, there is no economy. No, you can't run a business without the people. You can't. You have um, no customers without right. the people. But, you know, I, I know if we're, I don't know if we're going to go down this road, but, you know, we've seen that it, it has painfully um, uncovered the uh, healthcare disparities yeah. in this country. And, yeah. and, and, you know, we're seeing a disproportionately large amount of them happening in people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, and people want to throw out that it's because of their lifestyle, their lifestyle choices, their pre-existing conditions. Oh, come on. Um, and, and, and there is a component of that, but what it is, is they're our frontline workers. They're the ones that are having to, you know, go to the yes. grocery store and deal with our foolishness. Yes. Um, you know, they've been out on the front line because they have to support their families. Right. Um, well, and even so, more, some of these mm-hmm. um, 
pre-existing conditions exist because of the systemic racism. It's it built into everything we do. The food, food poverty, you know, not being able to get access to the right kinds of food in your neighborhood so that you can be healthy, you know, not having access to, you know, good health care or people who are going to judge you when you go into a hospital and not give you the right. I mean, I am, my heart is overjoyed to see somebody that looks like you, you know, that can help me. It's going to believe me. My doctor is Dr. Nubajiri. He's Japanese. And Mm -hmm. I have no problem with Dr. Nubajiri. He listens. You know what I mean? Yes. And that's what we need. And gosh, it's like a domino. So you can't look at the latest domino and say, that's Mm -hmm. the problem. That domino. You really can't. You know, and Shell, I mean, I have, um, you know, this is a whole nother talk show, but Mm -hmm. you know, I really have taken a step back and I'm really studying our history a little more. Um, not, and I'm trying, I'm learning our history more about not what we were taught in school, but the way history really happened. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, um, it's really providing some painful clarity to me about why we're in this state right now. Um, and, and, you know, the food deserts you talked about, you know, we still have redlining of communities, um, you know, we're seeing all these healthcare providers, um, at least in my social network, all these nurses and nurse practitioners and people are getting outed for their racist views. Yeah. I'm like, okay, so these are the people that are taking care of our patients. It's scary. It's no wonder that our um, people of color, number one, they don't want to come into the hospital. Right. They're because scared. there is no trust. Um, but then we already know that there is evidence out there that says that, you know, let's talk about black women. Yeah. People think that we have a higher threshold for pain. Yeah. So therefore we don't get the pain medication right. that we need. You know, okay, so, so let's go, go back on. in history. <laughs> we were the they experimented on us. Tuskegee. Yeah. Tuskegee. But this go back all the way back to the eight, you know, slavery. Yes. Days, you know, and they, what was the name of the woman? She has a name. Oh. So the gynecologist tested and did all sorts of crazy things to her. Lucy. That was her name, Lucy. Yes. Yes. I mean, and there's that image, it's circulating on the internet and that, that, that picture. And it, it just, it just breaks my heart. Um, and it's, it's heartbreaking, but you know, the reality, you know, Shell is that <laughs> we haven't really evolved, um, the way we feel like we have, um, yeah. it really took them, it took a pandemic, um, to shut off the, uh, sports, yeah. shut off entertainment and all these things that provided a distraction from us being able to to see what the true issues are. If you take all that away, like being naked in public, yeah. you just put it all out there on display. Oh, yeah. And so now we know that it ain't gone anywhere. It just was, <laughs> it isn't gone anywhere. So what are we going to do? Exactly. Um, what are we going to do? couple episodes ago it was it was called the episode was called the three beasts of the apocalypse and one is COVID-19 the other is the racial unrest and of course the civil rights movement that is blossoming out of it and the third one is a catastrophic failure in leadership and I believe that it's kind of this perfect storm where people's eyes have been opened up and and Lord I sure hope that 
the change that we're seeking will actually come. And we're seeing some movement. But had it not been for this pandemic and the craziness out of D.C., a lot of hearts and minds wouldn't have been ready to even open their eyes to see what's going on. And some of them still aren't. Exactly. They're not. They're not. You know, and I, I, I have... Um, <laughs> I just finished up a book called White Fragility. Yes. And, uh, and, and it's, um, you know, there's controversial opinions about whether or not you should read it or listen to it. But I just decided that I needed to understand, yeah. you know, some things. And, um, and, and one of the things, you know, we talk about, my husband talks about being a Marine. It's called plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. And if you deny that something actually exists, then you don't have to deal with it. Right. And so when people say that I don't see color, then that means you're, it's plausible deniability. If you don't see right. color, then that means you won't have to deal with it. Right. right. If you don't believe there's racism, then you don't have to deal with it. Is he race? And so, and so we have a pandemic of plausible deniability of yes. racism happening. Yes. And it's infiltrating every aspect of our lives, mm-hmm. every aspect. Um, so anyway. Let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. When we were roommates at TCU... <laughs> And you first started your nursing career. Did you ever imagine being where you are right now, let alone in the midst of a pandemic and leading a team that is fighting the biggest war that we've been up against in a very long time? Well, you know, not in nursing school, I didn't. But, you know, one of the things is that I, 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 I'd always been an overachiever. Mm-hmm. I was an overachiever in That's high true. school. Um, All I saw was work. <laughs> I was an overachiever at TCU. And, uh, but I, I will tell you that when I was in the Army and I was a, a young officer, I wanted to be a general. And mm-hmm. that was my plan, as yeah. I was going to be the chief of the Army Nurse Corps. And I wow. had, at, the, at the age of 22, I had set that goal as my yeah. aspiration. Um, but what happened is that at the young age of, I think, 25 or 26, I actually was an aide to a general who was the chief of the Army Nurse Corps. Oh, so you got to see. And I was, so I was, I was her aide when she took command of a hospital. And, and so uh, I was her aide for a year. And I got the exposure to, um, I, I, I interacted with generals for a year. Mm-hmm. That was it. And, and, and colonels. And, and I looked and I was like, these people, they ain't nothing. They're not really what I, I had fantasized them to be. I, I became very discouraged. I'm like, uh-huh. okay, I'm not, I'm not in the right field here. And then that, and that's how I left the army. Was right. I just became very discouraged. I'm like, okay, if this is what it means to be a general, I don't think I want a part of this. Mm. Um, and honestly, Shell, um, you may not know this, but when I left the army and I left nursing and went into sales, I had no, I no, had, I had no idea. Yeah, you know, I worked for Pfizer Pharmaceuticals for eight years. I was that drug rep with them samples. You know what? I just thought you were a corporate nurse. Nope, nope, nope. I eight wow. years. I left the bedside. Uh, left the bedside. Let my license lapse, um, and was a pharmaceutical sales rep. Um, and just really didn't think I was cut out to be a nurse or a leader mm. or anything because mm-hmm. I had been a captain in the army. And, uh, and had been a manager and I was just so discouraged. I burned out and just, just left it. And so I was working in sales and working for Pfizer pharmaceuticals. So everything from arthritis (laughs) to fungal infections, I I sold those drugs. And then when Pfizer did a a, a layoff back in 2006, they laid off 10,000 of us. 
Wow. Um, and, and I was one of them. And um, I thought I could stay in sales. Mm-hmm. But then I said, well, you know, let me just go back into nursing and I'm just going to take care of patients. I'm not going to do the whole leadership thing. Mm-hmm. That, that was my intention. I really wow. didn't think that I was cut out for it. Um, <clears throat> but then what happened is I got back at the bedside and two weeks, I hadn't practiced in eight years. I lost my license, had to recertify for my license. And two weeks into orientation, off of orientation, my boss asked me to be the charge nurse. I'm like, I ain't practiced in eight years and you want me to run this shift? <laughs> and, and it just took off from there. And that's yeah. what is that. So I literally have only been back into nursing since 2008. Wow. Yeah. And you've been on a rocket ever since. And it's been, it's been movement ever since because I came back and, you know, not even a year back into nursing, I realized healthcare had changed. And that's why I went back and got an MBA because then I became a manager. And I was like, man, this is a business, you know, yeah. changed into a business. And so mm-hmm. I got the MBA in healthcare management. Um, and then when I got that, I was like, oh, well, I think I could be a chief nurse one day. And then I was told, well, if you don't have a doctorate, need not apply. Uh, <laughs> and so that's how I ended up. And the, the doctor. Yeah. And then I found out that doctor didn't really uh, it didn't really apply to a lot of people. It only applied to me. Interesting. You know what? <laughs> there is a stat that I continue to quote from the U.S. Census back in 2016. Mm-hmm. The one group that has more advanced degrees than any other group, black women. We do. We do. We're living and witnesses. We, we, we do, because you know what? The, and the way that we've been told that we will advance is to keep going back to school. When yep. they don't want to give us a job, nope. oh, well, you need this. Go back and get this. So yep. I was like, okay, let me just go ahead and get this doctorate. And then I'm double board certified. I'm certified as a nurse executive, but I'm also uh, a fellow of the uh, American College of Healthcare Executives. Those mm-hmm. are the highest board certifications you can get. So I had to make myself undeniably qualified. I was like, okay, so now I got all the degrees. You can't send yeah. me back to school. You can't That's send me back to school. That's the route we have to take. Right. And then what happens is then you're just not a good fit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hard to work with. Not a good fit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I remember a while back you posted that little, that whole cycle. Of yeah. How when African American women, when we, when we enter in the workplace and people are inspired. Oh, Honeymoon. Diversity. Then the moment we start questioning the status quo. Yes. That's our stats. That's the beginning of our demise. Exactly. Um, and, and so uh, that's been the story of my life. Um, and so what I realized, Shell, you know, I need to get into a position where I can create the diversity yes. that we need in healthcare. And I'm very proud of my hospital um, because I have been very intentional. It is very diverse. Very. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking... Uh, you got because when when you walk in, when you talk about healthcare, you should walk into a hospital, and the hospital leadership team should represent the community that you're serving. Mm. Patients should be able to come into a hospital and look on a wall or look on a website, and they and whether it's Filipino, Hispanic, you know, African American, you know, Nigerian, and I I have a very colorful, um, and it's not just I was it. And they happen to be really good at what they do. Yeah. Well, that's uh, how you got to choose them. You have to choose them. You they can't be on my team it. unless you are good. Exactly. And so what it's done is it, it forces, um, you know, people who just happen to be at the right place at the right time and had the right look, they got to rise up. Yeah. They have to perform. Yeah. 
And I've noticed whether it's in healthcare, any kind of corporate workplace, there is this gushing hole in the leadership pipeline in the middle of it where many women of color, especially black women, get stuck. Been in the same role or they've gone to different roles, same level for yes. years and got to the point where many are satisfied or they've defaulted and said, I'm making a good check. I'm making good money. I can mm-hmm. buy my Fendi bag. I can travel. I see mm-hmm. cool people. It's all good. And whatever dream they had back when they were 22. And it's so funny that you would say that because I made a list at 22 that I got <laughs> back to after I left AT&T. And it's amazing what happens when you get back to that dream. But yes. we don't get back to the dream because we give up. We get really disappointed. And as the census also says, and Catalyst, we end up going to start our own companies. We have mm-hmm. opted out of the workplace. But I, as a, an executive coach, am helping and supporting women who want to stay in corporate mm-hmm. to get to your level. What does it take? <sighs> what does it take? Um, honestly, Shell, what I, what I see is sometimes you just got, you got to be able to go. Yeah. And it's sad. I mean, you've seen, I mean, I was in Texas and I packed up and moved to Colorado yeah. and then I moved to Hawaii and then I'm, and, and, and that's a sad reality yeah. that you face is that because you, you, you reach a glass ceiling and, and it's not that you have to, but you've got to be flexible and be a little bit more geographically flexible. And too often we want to stay put and just hope for the best. Yeah. Um, yeah. We just want to hope for the best. And, and I just want to tell you, I'm not going to name her, but I have a friend and a colleague right now who is in a very high level nursing leadership position. Comp is great. Golden handcuffs. Yeah. Um, I've That's helped what I her call. to um, interview for a chief nurse position. She has been made an offer. And, uh, but the money that they're offering is not what she's making right now. Wow. And so we had a conversation and I said, <laughs> go back, negotiate something that's midway, negotiate a sign on. And I said, but the only way that you are going to be able to break into the C-suite is that you may have to take a couple of steps back in order to be able to move 10 steps forward. Mm. And, and it's unfortunate, but it's just the reality of it. And, and what it is, is that they've been throwing money at her, but not giving yeah. her the advancement. Yeah. That's because exactly that's like how it happened. Money, right? So, and here's the uh, thing. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. <laughs> I get so no. excited about this conversation. Mm-hmm. We don't ask the right questions mm-hmm. before we get stuck we need to be asking where am i in the succession plan yep we don't ask those questions and we would be able to make better decisions faster about our careers if we just you know unwrapped it right away mm-hmm. instead of getting into the position where you know, everybody's comfortable. It's all good. I'm getting my X percent raise and my stocks and all of this stuff. And, mm-hmm. But I'm just hanging out right here. Mm-hmm. And they're yeah, happy. You get paid. And, and yeah, but it's, 
and, and that's exactly what it is. But, you know, Shell, the reason why you've seen me move is because I have asked those questions. Yeah. And the moment that I see the glass ceiling, I pack up all my experience and my credentials and I move. Yeah. Now, fortunately, I'm here and I don't want to do that anymore, but I've been very fortunate to become a part of a succession plan and be able to get promoted while staying put. Yes. Um, <clears throat> yeah, but that's what my, my, I think my message would be for our, for our sisters who are there. I see them in healthcare. They're stacked. Yeah. Some of them got more education. They got three master's degrees. Of course they do. Certification, but they're sitting at mid management level positions. Yeah. Middle management. Yeah. And uh, you know, and, and I'm just scratching my head you know, and I think it's just because people want to stay put. They do. And hope for the best. And, and you cannot do that. You have yeah. to be the CEO of you. You. And you have Thank to you. know your value. Yes. And sometimes that is taking, and I had to tell my friend, I said, okay, you're going to take a little bit of step here, but understand that now you're going to have the CNO on your resume. And every time Dick and Harry is going to be coming after you for now. Yes. So get in this role and, um, you know, sit in it for a year or two, two. You need a couple of years. And I said, and now you'll always be able to get a CNO position because yes. you have the experience. Yes. But she'd been with the same organization for 20 years. And, uh, and, oh, I, I, and unfortunately, she took my advice. Good. And, um, they are, and they're renegotiating her salary. Good. And, um, and she, is, she said that she's going to take it no matter what it is. Good. Um, she said she's going to go ahead and take it because that's the only way you're going to be able to break away from those golden handcuffs. Well, and negotiate the heck out of it. Because if they yes. can't give you the cash value, you need to get all the perks. Exactly. Something they didn't even exactly. think of. Exactly. So, um, so that's, you know, that's what I, I do, you know, and I'm mentoring some up and coming um, African-American nurse leaders, you know, Good. and, uh, and really trying to help them because they're, they're highly stacked and they're stuck. Yeah. Um, and part of my conversations is that you just, you may have to move. You don't have no kids. You know, there's no family here. Why yeah. are you here? Get on a plane. Get in the car. Get on a plane and, and, and go. <laughs> Keep going. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know what? That does my heart well because you just named off some of those leadership principles that I try to instill in my clients. And Thank you know you. I'm writing a book. Y'all, she's going to be in the book. So <laughs> you want to hear more from Keisha. Keisha, girl, you know you're my heart. I appreciate you. Thank you. I love you, Okay. Well, thank you. I love you too. And, and thank you for what you're doing, Shell. I really Absolutely. I, I appreciate it. And you're doing good work. Love your hair. Uh, just wanted to call. This is pandemic hair, girl. I tell people all the time. I actually braided my hair for the first time. It's not even braids. It's twist. It's twist. I know that. I, I watched it. And so it's, yeah, I was like, okay, go on then. Thank so, you. I, I'm still trying to follow that. the rules and stay alive, you know, and I want my family <laughs> to stay alive too. So I will sit Mine here too. for hours on hours and twist my hair. Me too. I hear you. Where can everybody find you on social media if they want to follow you? Well, you know, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, and I'm on LinkedIn. I don't know how to do Snapchat. I've tried. I tried TikTok. I'm not on Snapchat. Not even trying. Yeah, but TikTok is so confusing. I just get on there and watch people dance. (laughs) Uh, So, but pretty much I'm very active on Facebook and, uh, and Instagram and you know, LinkedIn, I, I keep it very professional. I maybe post there about once every three months. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, but I, I am active on there and, and reading links and things like that, though. But those are the things. Well, Instagram is where I follow you primarily. Will you give us your handle? Uh, yeah. Doc is D-O-C dot Kelly Fit Mom of two. It's the number two. There you go. That's it. And by the way, one of her young men is Orn Frog. Yay. Orn Frog. <laughs> 
I know my other baby, he's a, he's going to be an Aztec. Okay. Did he go to SMU? Why did I think he went to SMU? Uh, well, Henry's at TCU, but Seth is going to go to San Diego State University. Okay. So he's going to stay here in California. Okay. Yeah, he Ooh, got good. into TCU. Oh, he didn't want to go. I'm blaming him. <sighs> All righty. <laughs> Love you. Thank you so Love much. You All right. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. What an awesome conversation with Dr. Keisha M. Kelly. Did you hear what she called me throughout? She called me Shell. And let me tell you something. That's an indication of somebody who goes way back with me. You're either a high school friend, elementary school friend, or college friend. I'm so glad she came on the show. Find us online at theculturesoup.com, on Instagram and Twitter at The Culture Soup, and on Facebook at The Culture Soup Podcast. And look for us live more often on The Culture Soup Podcast Facebook page. Until next week. The Culture Soup Podcast is a production of No Size Communication, LLC. The Culture Soup Podcast is a registered trademark of No Silos Communications, LLC.